0: Hello, and you're listening to the Stay Whole Podcast. I'm Sanjay, your host. My aim is to help you demystify the world of health and wellness using evidence-based lifestyle interventions that will enable you to live happier, healthier, and more productive lives. This revolves around three key principles, eat, live, and move. Dr. Mishkat Shahata is a GP, a certified lifestyle physician, the founder of the Lifestyle Code Clinic. She holds a dual master's degree in public health, health service delivery and disease prevention. She's also a regional director for the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. She joins me to talk about how she is using lifestyle medicine to help couples improve their fertility. We discuss her own journey into using lifestyle to overcome health issues, why she founded the Lifestyle Code Clinic and the pillars of lifestyle medicine and how they impact our fertility chances. This is a fascinating conversation, so you may want to grab a pen and paper and take some notes. All the references from today's conversation can be found on my website, www.staywhole.co.uk. Mishkat, thank you very much for joining me on the Stay Whole podcast this morning. It's a pleasure uh, speaking to you uh, prior to this recording. I'm really looking forward to getting into the conversation today. Uh, for the benefit of the listeners, can you give us an introduction as to who you are and, and what you do?
1: Thank you so much Sanjay for having me today. It's an absolute pleasure. Um so I my name is uh, Dr. Mishka Jata and I'm a GP but I'm also a certified lifestyle physician which is probably something that people in the UK haven't been uh, Familiar with uh, as uh, of recent years, um, I started off actually. So I'm a third culture kid. Um, I grew up uh, in in many different countries, and I um, also studied in, in three different ones uh, doing my masters in public health after I graduated from medical school. Um, so I originally studied uh, in Sudan. And over the course of my education, um, just learning more about my postgraduate, um, you know, master's in public health, I just found that there was more to health than medicine in terms of a hospital setting or clinic setting. Uh, And there were so many things that shape uh, our health, like our educational level, our social status, um, our health literacy. So being able to understand what the uh, health professional in front of us is saying to us, and really engaging uh, with that and having the tools to, to be able to improve our health. Um, and then I, you know, did my master's, and I thought, okay, I really want to come back into medicine now, because uh, it was a two-year degree looking, focusing on health service delivery and disease prevention specifically. And I wanted to do as much of that as possible in a clinical setting with patients. So I decided to be a GP. And um, Throughout my GP training, uh, I found an interest in uh, women's health. And I did my diploma with the Royal College uh, of Obstetrics and Gynecology uh, in that. And then I, over the course of my... Uh, uh, you know, m- managing patients, I was, you know, giving them little tips here and there, things that had worked for me. Uh, and I'll come to what my story was uh, in a second in terms of my own uh, lifestyle medicine experience. Um, and I found that they, these things were working. And these patients were patients who had chronic diseases, um, who had kept coming back, because the problem wasn't being solved. And because they weren't getting relief, they were still in pain, they were still depressed, they still anxious. Um, And so I decided to dig deeper and think, you know, I'm doing something, right? I don't, I'm not really putting it in a framework, but it seems to be working. So is this a thing that is actually uh, uh, something that I can specialize in? So I stumbled upon, you know, through my reading and research, I stumbled upon a um, webinar, actually, uh, just three years ago, by Medic Footprints. And it was uh, talking about an introduction to lifestyle medicine, so a career in this. And I thought, you know, what is that? So I learned about it and I thought this is exactly what I've been doing, uh, but just in a more structured format. And I, you know, discovered that I could actually get involved with the British society that was spearheading this wonderful um, specialty in the U.K., Uh, Lo and behold, within the year, I became one of the regional directors for the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine in the West Midlands. And now I've moved down to London. I'm uh, one of the regional directors here. And lifestyle medicine um, is really it's a very new specialty. It was set up um, in the uh, in the US um, and it's come to the UK in the last three to four years. Uh, The British Society has been doing some amazing work raising awareness um, within the healthcare professional setting, but as as well in the public setting as to what it is. And it mainly focuses on six different pillars, trying to treat, prevent, and even reverse some chronic diseases. Uh, And we know that about 70% of diseases uh, are chronic and can be managed through lifestyle interventions alone. Um, And even 30% of cancers as well are also um, lifestyle related conditions. So the pillars are uh, mainly focusing on a whole food predominant uh, plant based predominant diet, being physically active, managing our stress, sleeping enough and sleeping well, um, having healthy relationships and a positive emotional well-being with ourselves and our um, family and friends, avoiding risky substances, um, as well as um, managing our stress. So... um, In that context, I started to use these things from what I learned from all the conferences and my reading to, again, apply it to patients uh, over the course of time. And I started getting better at it. And I was like, this is working. I'm really enjoying this. Can I take this further? Can I certify in this? Can I become the doctor that people come to to only do this? Um, And so, yes, I found that through the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine, I could certify. I have been certified um, since October gone, um, and I haven't looked back. And ever since, I just had this passion to set up my own clinic um, and do this for um, fertility patients, as well as patients suffering through recurrent miscarriages.
0: Yeah, I th- I think the the, I agree with you. Sorry about the BSLM. I think they're doing some great work in just raising awareness of this, you know, relatively new area of medicine. Which, in in a funny sort of way, you know, uh, of course there are applications where medicine medication is used, but the idea of lifestyle medicine is to try to avoid or eventually sort of stop using certain medication because what what lifestyle medicine teaches us is we have a lot of control in our own lives, and a lot of those those pillars you mentioned there, you know, a lot of those things. Once we become aware of them, we. can get them under our control and we can start to sort of influence our health outcomes so yeah i think it's you know it's great to have have a society like that and and just you know shouting out the the, the benefits of, of lifestyle medicine Um you mentioned your own your own journey I- into this would you would you care to share some of that story
1: yeah, sure. So I, um, had been, you know, in a tough place in my life, uh, during my GP training and I just wasn't very happy. I developed, uh, anxiety, um, off the back of being separated, um uh, from my then, uh, husband and I had gained a lot of weight during, uh, my marriage as well. And I, you know, ended up being, so I'm, I'm not that tall. I'm, you know, sitting at around, um, foot three and I weighed around 12 stone so I was my BMI was 28 which is way over what it needs to be especially for my ethnicity uh, because I'm Arab um, so it should be around 23 or less Um, so so people who don't do um, feet and inches uh, I weigh you know I was 161 centimeters and my weight was 73 kg so through you know, and I was at that time as well, I was also diagnosed with anxiety because I was just, you know, going through a lot and everything. Um, and then, so I had some CBT, uh, through my GP service, which was absolutely great, but it just wasn't enough because I still wasn't, I was this weight, which I never had been my, you know, when, when I, you know, pre all of that, my average weight was about 58 kg, um, you know, around, um, how much is that in stone? Actually, I, I forget. Um, I, I,
0: I get this every day. I, I get people's. I always tonight. try to convert never,
1: for everyone. It's so hard.
0: <laughs> I, I just use my calculator. It's so much easier.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, and so I decided to. You know, I've always been quite active uh, in school and at university. I really enjoyed exercising, and I'd stopped doing all of that. And I thought, you know, why? Let's just let me start that again. And I really had to find the motivation to do it because I wasn't feeling well in myself. Um, I was always tired. wasn't sleeping well. I just was really. Sluggish, um, and my mental concentration wasn't great so I thought okay I need to take charge of this so I started exercising much more regularly started going to the gym doing some weights which I'd never done uh, before and I really really enjoyed gave me a lot of confidence and I started really looking at my diet and what I was eating and I started I'd been a pescatarian for ages at that point uh, and I continue to be a pescatarian, but I was just eating more whole foods, uh, now and really focusing on my nutrients and what I was get, putting on my plate and how I was cooking it as well. Um, and then, you know, lo and behold, I'd lost the stone. Uh, my anxiety cleared up. I, um, would then, you know, fell in love with yoga. I was practicing yoga For a while before that, but I just, you know, was hit and miss with it. And I just became much more consistent with it. And I incorporated a lot of uh, meditative, um, you know, five, 10 minutes of breathing work before or after my yoga practice, which really, really helped me sort of manage my anxiety levels. And, you know, I lost a stone. I was feeling amazing. My energy levels were incredible. You know, sleeping really well, sleeping like a baby, like a log and um my productivity was really great at work i was very sharp and um and just generally just living life to the fullest and feeling extremely happy and my anxiety had just nearly completely disappeared i don't struggle with it to this day
0: that's amazing uh, thank you very much for sharing that that personal story and i think um it's what's interesting there is you know you went on this path of, of discovery and you tried different things i mean one of the things i i have highlighted there that i wanted to touch on is you mentioned you went you started going to the gym and you started doing weights, which was something you never typically did before. And uh, as a, as a, as a personal trainer, as a, someone who's from the fitness world, I think, you know, I uh, fully understand the benefits of strength training as, 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 do, as, do, as, as of course you do as well, but many, many females are a little bit afraid of, of strength training. What, what was it at that time that made you think, yeah, this is something I should try and something I should do?
1: That's a very good question. And I completely agree with you. I think a lot of women are missing out on improving their bone density, especially because women and lean women are more at risk of developing hip fractures and osteoporosis at an, a later age. And strength training with, with especially or well, weight training does especially that it reduces the risk by 66%. Um, for me, it was actually my brother. Uh, he's a personal trainer as well. And um, he was just, you know, exercising. He's, you know, he's completely obsessed with exercise. And he's in his 40s and he looks absolutely brilliant and he's quite a strong chap. So I talked to him and I said, Hey, you know, I've never done this before. Um, how can I start? And he just gave me some really good tips. And he said, Why do you want to do it? And I thought, I just want to look more toned. Uh, I want to feel stronger in myself. And I think it would help you know, boost, um, my, um, my energy levels as well. And it absolutely did. I felt amazing. I mean, in the beginning it was tough. I'm not going to lie. It was tough. It was, you know, all the doms, the delayed onset muscle <laughs> soreness. I was like, how do we fix this? <laughs> um, but after we after you get into it, it just becomes, um, like, it's almost like a, a high that you're like, I can't wait to go to the gym to lift the weight. And it becomes almost, I'm quite competitive, um, with myself, So it became a competition with me to see how much weight I could carry on the next uh, session. Um, And so, yeah, I think it really helped um, fuel that for me.
0: Yeah, I think it's, again, the reasons and the motivations for going into it in the first place are very common than what I hear. You know, I want to turn up, I want to get a bit stronger. But then I think it's the other benefits that I think not for everyone but for a lot of people have the biggest impact so it's the energy levels it's the you know it's just the feeling better within yourself it's the de-stressing for me you know lifting weights still to this day and i've you know for the last year i've actually not been able to do this and and not be able to get into gym but for me lifting weights is one of the most de-stressing exercise type of exercises i can do so i think what i've seen is people start to as you mentioned chase that high and that what's that high well it's a bit of endorphins a bit of dopamine but it's also just feeling a little bit de-stressed and feeling better uh it's great that you you know you went on this journey and you've obviously you've obviously benefited from it. Um, you mentioned yoga as well, and that's something else that you know I hear a lot about with with people that are practicing lifestyle medicine or getting involved. And in, in yoga has a big part to play. You know, yoga. I mean, just to, we're talking about strength training. Uh, let's not forget that yoga is a is a wonderful form of strength training because all the poses and the holds that you might be doing, you know, your weight bearing on your wrists and your knees, your ankles. Um, there's a there's a big strength element in yoga. So yeah, I think when we talk about strength training, yes going in the gym, lifting weights, that's a traditional form of strength training, but we can use our body and we can do things like yoga, Pilates, which can also give us a lot of benefits.
1: Absolutely. I do agree. And, you know, I love yoga because it has the meditative work and it it also has breath work. It has strength training, as you've mentioned. It also has flexibility and balance. So it really covers quite a lot. And if, you you know, you boost it to a quite a a quick vinyasa flow, you can even get aerobic um, benefits out of that. So it's, you know, almost an all-encompassing exercise.
0: Yeah, it kind of hits it hits all the hits all all the all the parameters, doesn't it? Which is which is great. Um, what's what's your what's your sort of routine lifestyle like at the moment? How are you managing these these lifestyle you know changes in in the present day? what, what what's your what's your sort of routine look like?
1: So I actually got, uh, you know, just you know, gonna take you, uh, a year ago. I got really, uh, you know, quite a bad case of COVID. And ever since then, uh, and I developed, uh, blood clots on my lungs after I uh, had. COVID as well. So it was a complication of it. And I was out of work for three months and that really sort of threw me off completely. Um, So since then, so pre COVID, I was exercising six times a week, around 40 45 minutes in the gym, uh, including running as well as doing fight leg training, uh, which is a form of just, you know, speed running, uh, speed play running. Um, And now I've not been able to get back to that and I'm more uh, on the gentle side of things. So I do run occasionally, maybe, you know, once or twice a week i mainly do uh yoga and i what i do with yoga uh, is depending on the day depending on how i feel it's either going to be a a high flow vinyasa flow that's quite aerobic in intensity or i'm going to do a more restorative one um, with some more flexibility and, and strength and balance training and you know I would love to get back to more uh, vigorous strength training but not as yet. I've tried to do a couple of hit sessions no more than 15 minutes uh twice a week. Um and that's been fine for a while but then I actually got shingles after I oh, had yeah. covid. <laughs> and that really threw me off again um so again i'm starting to build up towards uh to to high intensity uh, interval training sessions with two sessions of yoga and two sessions of running and that really kind of does it for me i think from an exercise point of view um from my diet point of view i've actually become a vegan uh, just in the last six months and i haven't looked back and you know people confuse veganism with plant-based uh, diets quite a lot of the time so i would say i am i am both i am plant-based for my diet and my health uh, but i am vegan uh, for the animals and for the environment
0: i think that's an important distinction to make isn't it because when you mention you know you talk about the word of, or you talk about veganism it's a, it's a way of life isn't it so it's a, it's, a, it's almost like its own you know dare i say it religion in that you know vegan is, vegans will refrain from uh, of course, eating any anything that's produced from from animals, but they will also refrain from you know wearing animals, so leather and you know uh, consuming products that are you know, uh, been tested on animals and things like that. Whereas a plant, someone that's following a plant-based diet is simply just avoiding eating animal products, but they may still wear leather shoes and leather belts and, you know, have other, other aspects of their life. So it is, it's a very important distinction to make, um, that, and clearly you've, you've gone on this journey and you've discovered that, you know, you're at a place where you're adopting both. And we're gonna, we can talk a little bit about the benefits of, of the plant-based diet when we get into some of the discussion later, later on, um, but I think what what I w- wanted to talk to you about today was is, is this idea of lifestyle medicine as it's as i said it's becoming so much more popular we're hearing a lot more about it you know i've had many uh, doctors gps on this podcast talking about lifestyle medicine before um but it's what's interesting to me when i first spoke to you is this idea of you know lifestyle medicine fitting into the in this into this picture about fertility and you know what couples wanting to you know get pregnant and of course you know infertility is a, is a big big um you know uh, i guess hurdle that a lot of couples are trying to overcome to, to, to get pregnant. And I remember when my wife was pregnant, you know, I, I we did, we did, uh, looking back, I wasn't back then, I wasn't really aware of lifestyle medicine in, in the, in the way I am now, but I did think about this and I thought, okay, well, surely there's some things we can do here to help us. And of course, you know, you read that, you know, you read the typical literature, folic acid, and you know, all these other vitamins and supplements don't eat this, don't eat that. So there is a little bit of that involved, but I don't, I don't think I've ever had a heard it being touted in, in the way of lifestyle medicine. So, um, this is obviously an area that you've you've studied in, you've focused on, you're working in professionally. So let's let's talk about that. Where does lifestyle medicine fit into the whole picture of fertility?
1: That's a very good question. Um, so I'll tell you how I got into it, because uh, as a GP, my day-to-day is not fertility work. Uh, but my brother, actually, uh, his name is Mr. Hassan Chahata. He is a, a pioneer in uh, recurrent miscarriage work. Um, he, he, he's the founder of the Center for Reproductive Immunology and Pregnancy, also known as the CRP Clinic, um, which is also a King's Fertility satellite site for uh, assisted conception and IVF. And we were talking, he, he, you know, he, he didn't know about lifestyle medicine. He said to me, you know, so you're specializing in, in lifestyle medicine. What is that? And so we started talking about it and I said, you know, um, and, and the majority of his work is focusing on, on the recurrent miscarriage, uh, work. It, he did, uh, some research many, many years ago, which was actually quite groundbreaking. And he found that in some, uh, women, their natural killer cells, uh, misdiagnose the pregnancy as a foreign body and they attack the pregnancy and cause them recurrent miscarriage loss. Uh, And I said to him, you know, actually, did you know that our immune system, 70% of our immune system sits within the gut and how our gut health is performing? And he said, no, I didn't know that, you know, and so what is, what is the gut microbiome? Um, And so I started telling him about it. And I said, you know, there's a lot of things that show that uh, a balance in uh, the gut bugs, there's trillions and trillions of, of bugs uh, that outnumber us on a 10 to 1 uh, ratio. And they are involved in a lot of things like glucose metabolism, a vitamin B synthesis, um, our immune system, which you already mentioned. The obvious one is you know, food digestion, obviously. But they're, uh, we're learning more about them and how they can actually impact on our mental health as well. So we know that there's a crosstalk between our brain and our gut. Um, and he said, you know, that's really interesting. You know, how can we apply this in, the, in a fertility setting? So I, you know, started looking more deeply into this and um, it, there was lots of research and I thought, you know, my interest in women's health anyway, this, this is just the next step, the logical step forward. And so I brought together uh, a you know a wonderful team uh, of a fertility nutritionist. I also have a dietitian. um I have a um a mindfulness teacher and a personal trainer, and we look at how we can modify the uh, lifestyle factors that may be contributing to reducing this uh, couple's or this woman or man's fertility um, by using lifestyle interventions. And there's a lot of research, which we'll get into, uh, in a second, um, you know, telling us how we can do that and what the the links are uh, so far. And we have to bear in mind actually with a lot of studies is that it's very hard for us to, um, confer cause or effect with lifestyle factors, because there's so many things at play in the way that studies are designed. um, it's extremely difficult to do that, but there are associations, um, and, you know, just it's enough for us to see that it, when it works in practice, we know that this is the right way to go as, as well.
0: Sure, yeah, that's a, that's a very good that's a very good important distinction to make because yeah, absolutely, there's so many factors here at play, but you know, repeated over and over again, and of course, applying it, you know, it, from your side of things, you've applied it in a clinical setting, you've applied it to your own life, you know, in other aspects of lifestyle medicine. So, um, I think that's that's a, that's an important uh, an important evidence base as well, isn't it? Rather as well as what, what we get from the laboratories and the research.
1: Absolutely. And so the the same applies, the same, you know, six pillars we've mentioned apply for for fertility and um, recurrent miscarriages. And let's not forget the men in this conversation, right? Because we know that there's uh, a lot, there are a lot of studies that look at sperm quality and DNA fragmentation um, related to lifestyle and what what men are eating or what they're doing can impact on their sperm quality. Uh, and this is really key, you know, that we can't just talk about the woman because it takes two to tango. We need to try and manage both the man and woman in this couple uh, to try and re- uh, achieve a health- healthy pregnancy. The one thing we do focus on as well to add uh, in fertility specifically is environmental toxin exposure. Uh, and we'll come to talk about that um, as well.
0: Okay, so let's go into this, these seven pillars and how they uh, are, are fit into this picture of fertility. So let I me mean, we'll start with the, the, the food you mentioned um, from a lifestyle medicine perspective, when you know focusing on eating more of a whole food plant-based diet is going to be beneficial. How does that fit into this, this fertility picture? What does that do for us?
1: Yeah, so I think I'll start off with explaining what a whole food plant-based diet looks like. So we um, we know that um, whole foods means that we should be eating things as close as possible to how they're grown. Um, A plant-based predominant diet includes eating um, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, uh, legumes, which are beans, peas and lentils, nuts and seeds, herbs and spices, and making water your drink of choice. We're really eliminating um, or reducing as much as possible any junk or processed food um, or uh, animal products uh, as much as we can. Uh, and junk food also includes fizzy drinks and um, energy drinks as well. so that's really key. We can have herbal teas, uh, tea, and coffee uh, on a whole food plant-based predominant diet as well. Uh, and the majority of uh, research shows that especially from the blue zone so where the, uh, there's you know more centenarians or people who live over a hundred who are living well and healthily um, follow a whole food plant-based predominant diet, but their ratio is at least ninety to ninety five percent plant-based. And that's really key. Uh, and they eat a lot of carbohydrates. And I think, you know, carbohydrates have been demonized quite a bit uh, in the last few, uh, in the last decade or so. And so we'll come to talk about that as well. But generally, for couples in general, there was one study uh, that showed that a Mediterranean style diet, so which is a type of whole food plant based diet, because you can have uh, a, a, a plant based diet it can be Mediterranean, it can be a flexitarian, which means that you can include very occasional animal products, uh, a vegetarian diet. Is also a plant-based predominant diet, um, and a Nordic diet is also similar to that. So, when they looked at couples who were eating a Mediterranean-style diet in the study, they found that they were more, uh, forty percent more likely to become pregnant than those who were eating a health-conscious, low-processed diet, which was not a Mediterranean-style diet. Um, And that's you know that's really key. Forty percent is a huge number, right?
0: Yeah, it's big. Big, yeah. big number.
1: Yeah. Um, and there was another study as well. Uh, so it's quite a famous study. It's been going on for, for eons. Uh, it's the, called the Nurses' Health Study. And it just carries on um, where they've registered uh, around 116,000 nurses, ages between 25 and 42. And they've just followed them up uh, over the, over time. It started up in 1989. And one of the things they were looking at uh, was uh, a study looking at the diet, uh, impact of diet and lifestyle and the prevention of ovulatory disorders and infertility. Um, And they came up with a fertility diet out of that. There were 10 evidence-based suggestions for improving fertility over the course of an eight-year study uh, of over 18,000 women within that cohort of 116,000. I'm not going to get into too much detail of what they found, but there are some key um, suggestions that I would recommend. the first thing is they found that women who were eating full-fat dairy products had an increased chance of getting pregnant compared to those who had low-fat or semi-skimmed or skimmed uh, dairy. As a plant-based health professional, we I do not recommend uh, dairy because a lot of people are lactose intolerant and dairy also has a lot of um, hormone disruptors including insulin growth like factor one in milk for example that can really wreak havoc with our insulin resistance Uh, but then again there's limit there's very conflicting evidence uh, with dairy uh, to date and with eggs similarly as well so if you choose to eat dairy eat full fat if you don't choose to eat dairy that's absolutely fine as well the other go on
0: sorry i was just going to but in there and say the dairy, it's interesting because I remember, uh, so my background is Indian, you know, culture. My parents' uh, grandparents from India, and I remember that they would give pregnant women or p- before women were pregnant, I'll probably have to check with my wife because I remember her getting bombarded with this about eating what we would we, we consume a lot. They consume a lot of ghee. I don't know if you understand, ghee yeah, is butter. clarified butter, yes, yeah, so yeah. it's a full fat dairy product. Yeah, I remember them feeding women you know, spoonfuls of ghee. Um, And it was to do with exactly, you know, what this study has shown to try and say, hey, you need to, if you want to get pregnant or you want to have a healthy baby, you need to eat all this full fat dairy. Now, I don't know where that thinking came from. Obviously it's been passed down from generation to generation, but I think a lot of things happen this way, don't they? We've been doing these things for centuries. I mean, meditation, which we'll talk about, is one of these things, right? They've been doing meditation for centuries, yet now we have the science to prove it. So there's a little bit there. And of course, there is a little bit of conflicting evidence as well when when it comes to dairy. yeah, you know, the, the the growth factors and, and inflammation that it can cause, of course. But yeah, I just found it very fascinating that here's another one of those ancient wisdoms that, you know, science is trying to understand why these things work.
1: Yeah, exactly. And we have to bear in mind that nutritional science is is very young. It's only 100 years old. Yes. Uh, but there are some good quality uh, research uh, studies coming out nonetheless. So the other thing that the Nurses' Health Study found for from a fertility point of view on a diet is that women who ate around 60% of their calories from slow carbohydrates tended to be a healthier weight than women who avoided carbs. And weight is really important in helping you get pregnant because if you're overweight or obese, you're more likely to not fall pregnant. Um, so again, not demonizing carbs. You want to choose the right carbohydrates. So Carbohydrates, predominantly coming from fruits, vegetables, and whole grains, as well as uh, beans, peas, and lentils, are the way forward. We're not asking people to to eat, uh, you know, processed food at all, and you know we should be trying to minimize and cut these out as much as possible. And by processed, I mean white rye, white pasta, uh, white bread. Um, really key because all of that stuff has been stripped of its fiber, of its minerals and vitamins, um, and all you're getting is a carbohydrate that is a fast carb that's going to go straight into your blood bloodstream and spike your blood sugar, and ask you know your liver is then going to go into overdrive to create insulin to chase that glucose and bring it down, put it into the cells, and over time these insulin spikes can cause insulin resistance.
0: So the slow, the slow carbohydrate, fast carbohydrate is simply we're talking about glycemic index here. Correct yeah okay great just to clarify because i think people are maybe familiar with the term glycemic index or fast slope but that's what it means so it's when you these white refined uh you know refined sugars refined carbohydrates as you quite rightly said they strip them all, all the all the all the real goodness i guess in a way and you're just getting this big dose of glucose or energy which of course we can get from other sources as well so
1: absolutely and you're not yeah. getting any fiber as well yeah because yeah, <laughs> Little I mean, to know. Is, absolutely
0: yeah. And, and i think you know if we think about it from a biological perspective you know we have we have a tool inside of us to do that stripping away uh you know we have a digestive system and you know this is exactly what the digestive system does it's to break down our food and what what we're doing here by eating these refined carbohydrates is that we've already kind of semi-processed them so that our body our, our digestive system doesn't really have to do a lot to get access to the glucose now in the case of bread it's a good example white bread for example i mean you could People can try this at home. You can take a piece of white bread and just chew it in your mouth and just chew it for a bit longer than you need to. And eventually it'll start to taste quite sweet and that's literally just the glucose you're releasing from from within your mouth so you can see there that there's not a lot of work that your digestive system has to do so of course you're going to get this big spike of glucose which as you as you correctly said over time is going to going to create problems in insulin resistance which of course can lead to type 2 diabetes so um, exactly it's an important important distinction to make so we're talking about slow releasing carbohydrates um which are, which are going to be hugely beneficial keeping our blood sugar stable and also giving us a steady release of energy so we're not getting these lows and highs which is, is very important.
1: Extremely important, extremely important. Um, so the other thing they found from this study was that the largest decline in fertility uh, in women was in those who were eating trans fats. So trans fats are artificial fats. They're created through hydrogenation of oils, and they're mainly found in processed foods. And so trying to eliminate processed foods is the best thing anybody can do. Um, and ultimately, we... will. So they cause inflammation, they wreak havoc in the body, they cause damage to cells. And just the best thing to do is to avoid them as much as possible. They also found that women who um, were having more higher protein intake, so about 115 grams a day, compared to women who had low protein intake of about 77 grams per day, were 41% more likely to develop ovulatory infertility. So problems with their ovulation leading to uh, infertility. And that's really key because people are always ranting about <laughs> protein. Are you getting enough protein in a plant based diet? And yes, you are. You're getting enough protein in the right form so long as you plan your meals properly. And it is the better type of pr- protein. It's anti inflammatory. Uh, and that really helps with reducing inflammation in the body overall and reducing it in your gut uh, microbiome. Um, and so, you know this is really key that people need to to know this and and not feel so worried about their their protein intake
0: yeah the protein the protein question especially around plant based diets and veganism is is a big one uh, even just around uh, fertility and pregnancy in general i think there's a uh, there's a there's a logical train of thought here which i've heard other people say well you know you're growing you're trying to grow you when, i guess this is when you w- have become pregnant you know you're growing a child or a human being inside of you uh, what is what is human being made of or well, made of tissues protein or oh, protein okay so we need to make sure we're getting lots of protein into our diet to make sure that we we can help this 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 being grow inside of us however the study is showing the, the opposite that when we get too much protein it can have a detrimental effect which is fascinating um and and certainly as you rightly said in reply plant-based diet um you can get protein you know from lots of different sources and and it's it's again it's it's marketing it's media that have maybe misled us to believe that you know you don't get enough protein and again as a doctor you can maybe help clarify this but i personally have never come across you know major cases of protein deficiency certainly in this country anyway Um, yeah absolutely so it's just, it's just something that's not, not really there. You mentioned pe- carefully planning that diet out. And I guess that just means eating a variety of foods. And I think this is where we talk about things like eating the rainbow and getting a balance and a variety It's going to give you all the essential, you know, I amino- mean, we're talking about amino acids here, just to clarify, we're talking about protein, these with the building blocks of protein, we talked about carbohydrates, the building blocks of carbohydrates are glucose and sugars of course the building blocks of protein are amino acids and you can get amino acids from all different types of foods especially whole foods you know legumes brown rice all these other areas and then just combining those foods together gives you these complete amino acids so absolutely if you have a carefully planned diet protein deficiency is not is not really in in, 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 even in the question
1: absolutely i agree and you know leading up to you know talking about the type of protein as well we you know you mentioned that plant-based is better and i agree with that um they looked in the study as well to see whether the type of protein made a difference and they found that yes women who had higher intake of animal protein had 39% uh, were 39% more likely to have ovulatory infertility so again and the reverse was true those who were having uh, plant protein were substantially less likely to have problems with their ovulation okay, so that's no. really key
0: yeah so this sorry to interrupt there just just to clarify you we, we talked you said correctly before we start this piece about you know let's not forget about the men in this picture can did these these principles the principles we're talking about now they apply to the to the male and the female equally
1: they do they do absolutely and for men specifically uh there was uh, another study as well looking at uh, it was you know a, a systematic review of observational studies about 35 studies where they looked at their diets and their um, sperm uh qu- quality as well and they found that men who had the highest intake of caffeine alcohol red meat and processed meat had you know the the worst sperm quality and the negative chance of pregnancy so the same applies within ter- in terms of things to avoid and they found that you know certain nutrients such as omega-3 fatty acids um lots of different types of vitamins including um some uh, micronutrients like selenium, zinc, and lycopene, as well as a diet low in saturated fatty acids and trans fats. So saturated fats mainly come from dairy products and from animal products, especially in red meat and processed meat. Uh, These were um, associated with better health, uh, semen quality. But interestingly, they found that um, skimmed milk, low-fat dairy, and uh, seafood and chicken were alongside fruit, vegetables, and whole grains were associated with um, better sperm quality in some studies.
0: That's fascinating. Again, just think that idea of thinking about the quality of, you know, sperm. I think it's not something. It's not something really. I've never had, you know, a conversation, or no one's ever come. You know, when we went to the doctors when we were pregnant, no one's ever, or when we we're trying to get pregnant, no one's ever mentioned that before. So it's just something that isn't on our radar. Um, and I think the, when you think about it and, and explain like this, it does make sense, right? Because it's fifty percent is coming from the sperm, so it, it's got a big, big part to play in this. So absolutely, it has a the, the quality of that is something we should be thinking about and what can influence that in, in the most, in the, in, in the greatest way to give us the most beneficial or the pos- most positive chance of getting pregnant. So um,
1: absolutely, it's, it's a
0: very important conversation uh, to, to, to be had as well.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and the the um the arena at the moment and the atmosphere is leading more towards that. There is there are a few clinics, one of uh, them being CRP Clinic that does a lot of work on sperm DNA fragmentation, looking at um, you know pre lifestyle change and post lifestyle change and making some recommendations. Um, for that to help see changes in the the quality of the um DNA so the DNA fragmentation test is basically looking at whether uh, how how much the uh, DNA is damaged essentially inside the sperm, and we know from research that lifestyle changes um including physical activity which we'll talk about shortly as well can um improve that, so it's definitely something that we need to be focusing on absolutely,
0: great. So we've talked about nutrition. So I guess movement or physical activity is, is, is the next one on the on the pillars. Where where does that play in, in, in fertility?
1: Yeah. So physical activity in general is extremely, extremely important. And I think we must differentiate between physical activity and exercise for our listeners. I'm sure you know the difference and I know the difference, but they may not. Um, So physical activity is essentially just any movement that we undertake to expend energy beyond our baseline, our baseline metabolic rate. Uh, But exercise is something that we do on a recurring basis that is planned um, to improve our health ultimately and so physical activity means that we should be moving less uh moving uh, moving more sitting less apologies um but also and then exercise comes in where we need to improve our different parameters of uh, physical exercise so improving our cardiorespiratory fitness our strength our flexibility and our balance and for fertility specifically, um, we know that moderate exercise. So I like to explain it to my patients in the form of a talk test. So I tell them that if they're uh, able to talk but not sing uh, when they're doing the exercise, that means they're up, they're going at a moderate intensity, and that's the that's. The level that they should be going at around for about at least 150 minutes uh, a week as a minimum, up to 300 or more if they wish to. Uh, And that is the recommended uh, amount for women trying to conceive. We don't recommend vigorous exercise. uh, And that's off of um, a few studies, one of which showed that women who were exercising to exhaustion were actually uh, two to 2.3 times more likely to have fertility problems. Than those who were exercising at a lower intensity. So that's really key. You don't need to do too much, but you need to do enough to improve your fertility um the chances of you falling pregnant, but also exercise is this amazing thing. If it was a pill uh, and you know you were told of all of the benefits of it of how it would improve your cognitive function, your sleep, your immune system, your longevity, um, your fertility, your bone density. I mean, you would take that in a heartbeat, right?
0: You take that and and if whoever's selling it would would be would you know be gazillionaires, right?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> it even reduces the risk of breast and colon cancer by up to 30%. So So um, it's just an amazing, amazing medicine. Um, And so not only are these women going to be benefiting for fertility, but also for their overall current and future health. Um, And so there was, again, a study that showed, it was a study of over 17,000 women where they uh, it was a prospective study. So they were looking at their diet and lifestyle, and the prevention of ovulatory infertility over the course of time, uh, and they were followed over several years to time to pregnancy, and they didn't have a history of infertility. But they tried to see what these women were doing, and which would fall pregnant the fastest. And they found that alongside five um, similar, you know, lifestyle risk factor uh, risk factors like eating uh, factors like eating a balanced diet or getting. Um, you know, not smoking and not drinking uh, alcohol. They, the women who were getting at least thirty minutes of physical activity of exercise per day, had a sixty nine percent lower risk of ovulatory disorder and uh, infertility.
0: Wow, that's phenomenal! Sixty nine percent.
1: That is incredible, and it's combining all of these things together. So these five factors together, uh, and you know, keeping their their weight low uh, as well as a BMI, BMI in the healthy range. So that is you know, we, we need to do things together. They all have uh, amazing benefits on their own, but putting them all together drastically improves your chances of falling pregnant. And similarly for men, men, um, the data is actually not, uh, is quite sparse for uh, exercise and male fertility. But again, we know that exercise is really, really important for health. Um, and generally Uh, moderate exercise and vigorous exercise were fine for men trying to conceive but they found that men who were uh, exercising using uh, cycling for five hours or more per week were more likely to have lower sperm concentrations and lower total um, sperm who were motile or so moving uh, and swimming in the right way that they should so cycling is something that men who are trying to conceive should avoid mainly because it's it's the the pressure of sitting on the bike um as well as the uh heat buildup that causes that to to uh, potentially causes that to happen
0: that's fascinating i I've, i think i've heard something along these lines before but i never really looked into it but it's it's interesting that this is actually a thing yeah it, again logically that makes sense but it's not something that you would necessarily uh you know think of it in, in the moment so that's a very interesting piece of research there as well
1: yeah definitely
0: so we've got Physical activity, uh, I like the idea of this, this moderate. I think that's something that not only people that are, you know, f- f- for fertility reasons, but for just anyone that wants to get active, I think it's so important to understand that, you know, just by working at that moderate intensity, you can gain, you mentioned that the exercise was a pill and all these benefits that we can gain, well, we, we've seen the there are studies out there that have shown the benefits, you know, of just working at that moderate intensity for that prescribed 150 minutes a week. And if you look, if you think about it, 150 minutes divided by seven is about 21. So we're talking about 20 odd minutes a day of, you know, light, to, sorry, moderate intensity. And, light, and again, I, I use the talk test example all the time. It's just, yeah, be able to talk, not sing. Uh, you might feel your heart rate, you know, increasing, you might get a little bit breathless, but you should still be able to hold a conversation. So, um, yeah, I think this is, this is, this is really important. Um, particularly when it comes to, when it comes to facility. but, uh, yeah, just, in, in general, I think there's a lot. There's a lot of people can take from that.
1: And brisk walking is, you know, the finest and easiest example that I can give. People think that, you know, is walking going to be enough? Yeah, absolutely. If you do it briskly, that is a moderate intensity exercise.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Walking, walking is walking is king as far as I'm concerned, especially when you do it. Yeah, that intensity, which is great. um Okay, so we've got nutrition, movement. Uh, I guess next on my list here, I've got uh, stress. So. This is this is of course something that people often you know feel like ah oh, it's not something you know in food and nutrition and, and movement I guess people have more understanding. Well, I'm in control of that. I can decide if I want to eat something or not eat something. I can decide if I want to go out and do some exercise or not. Stress is something people feel that they don't have much control over. Can we talk about that a little bit?
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's high time that we discuss stress, especially. I mean, it's so ubiquitous at the moment, isn't it, with the pandemic? Everybody's experienced some form of stress. Um, I like to start off talking about stress and that not all stress is bad. We need a certain amount of stress uh, at the appropriate times to save us from certain threats. So if we didn't have the stress response, which is a flight or flight response, where our hormones like adrenaline and cortisol kick into action, uh, because our brain has detected a threat, then we wouldn't have been able to escape that saber tooth tiger hundreds of years or thousands of years ago, right, to be able to survive to this day. Excuse me. So we need a certain amount of stress to fight certain um, stressors that come across but if our stress response becomes chronic or prolonged, then we start running into trouble because our body is being told that we, there's, there's a constant threat. That means we should be constantly stressed, you know, pumping our heart really fast, having all these hormones flooding our, st- our bloodstream, which eventually leads to chronic inflammation, can affect our physical health, our mental health, our metabolic health, as well as re- increase our risk of disease and increase our chances of a premature death. So let's not underestimate the impact stress can have on our bodies. And especially when it comes to fertility, it's quite a big one. And in the context of couples who are trying to conceive, it is even more ubiquitous because, you know, where does the stress come from for these uh, couples trying to, con- to, to to conceive? It comes from the pathing of time and them not being able to, not being uh, not being told that they're pregnant yet. And it can come from them, you know, not knowing where to go, choosing different clinics that are offering different things, it can be quite an expensive journey to go on when you're trying to conceive. Uh, and there can be a lack of uh, emotional support from their partner or from their family. Uh, there can be a lot of uh, treatments that require, uh, you know, poking and prodding, um, or you know, more invasive uh, tre- um, uh, even diagnostics, and that can be quite. Uh, so sort of harrowing for some women. It can also put a lot of stress on their their social situation when they're looking at women who have fallen pregnant, couples who have fallen pregnant, and they haven't yet. And people know that they're trying to fall pregnant. It just it can again obviously catapult into uh, more serious uh, mental health issues. Some people who are trying to conceive as well have PTSD symptoms, and can be formally diagnosed with PTSD as well. Um, And a lot of women and men can be just putting their life on hold, just waiting for that baby to come before they start uh, their next uh, life journey uh, or phase. And all of these things can lead to stress that can affect their fertility, and it ends up becoming almost a vicious circle. They're stressed because of whatever the reasons that we mentioned are, or others, and it makes it harder for them to fall pregnant because when you're stressed you're telling your brain that there's a threat and it's not time for me to get pregnant it's not time for me to have a baby because this baby will not survive in this dangerous situation just looking back you know to a sort of a biological evolutionary point of view um so it makes perfect sense that women who are struggling with um with stress can also struggle with infertility so back in 1989 uh, a few researchers look back and uh, did, you know were discussing stress in the sort of the context of infertility, and they had some sort of three ideas, and they said you know maybe psychosocial problems trigger infertility, or maybe infertility triggers psychosocial problems, uh, and maybe there's an interaction that is causal between the two. Um, and they they didn't really find anything. And then we fast forward to 2018. And they looked at, again, another set of researchers looked at the current review highlights, looking at a relation, the relationship between uh, women, stress, uh, quality of life and reproductive function, and that they, they thought that the associate, association was more likely to be reported in infertile women than fertile women, and that a vicious cycle was making them support each other. But the, again, they, they found the association, but they couldn't find a cause and effect. And so due to the lack of, conf- of, you know, due to the lack of objective measures or inability of us to formally evaluate uh, using validated instruments, and due to the presence of conflicting results from different studies, it is very hard for us to say that there is a cause and effect between the two and which, you know, is it a chicken or the egg, but we know that there is an association. And that is enough because there's enough, there's data that shows that women who were are pregnant and are stressed, actually are more likely to have a preterm birth, um, as well as have a low birth weight baby. The low birth weight baby is is due to their indirect, um, an indirect cause of excess smoking. So that's really key as well. So stress in itself can cause us to become less fertile. But what we do when we're stressed, the behaviors that we undertake can also lead to feed into this negative loop. So women might be having less sex, for example, they don't feel like it, they may be undertaking more behaviors that reduce their odds of falling pregnant, like smoking, restarting smoking, drinking more caffeine, drinking more alcohol, or just emotionally eating and indulging in processed foods that again, are pro-inflammatory and can lead to infertility.
0: Yeah, so it's not just the stress, is it? This is fascinating. It's not just the stress or the sh- the, the stressor, as you mentioned earlier, that is going to cause these problems. It's the the reaction of the individual, and and as you mentioned, the, the habits that they may follow as a result of the stressor. So that's absolutely fascinating. I think from a physiological level, and please correct me if I'm wrong. How I understand this, and I think it would be important to try to explain this in, in 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 some context, is that in that fight or flight mode, as you quite rightly mentioned, the 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 brain is recognizing, hey, I'm not, it's not time to have a baby or have a child to bring them up in this, in this dangerous environment, but also the body's under, under stress is, it's trying to prioritize its, its functions, right? So if you are, if you actually are under threat from this, this, this predator, then, you know, you want the extra heart, you want the increased heart rate to deliver blood and oxygen and glucose to your muscles. You know, you want that little bit of adrenaline and cortisol, you know, you want your breathing rate to go up. These all, all these things are helping us to, t- to, fight this, this threat in the context of fertility, of course, at that moment in time, you know, giving birth or becoming pregnant is not a priority. So, uh, you know, what the body tries to do is, well, I don't need to worry about you know, the, the, the uh, reproductive organs. So almost it slows down or, you know, shuts off the supply to those areas. And, and I know with men, um, chronic levels of stress, you know, uh, erectile dysfunction is a, is, a common, is a very common thing. And then a lot of that is down to chronic levels of stress because the brain just going, hey, you don't need to think about reproducing right now. So I'm just going to prioritize and help manage whatever this threat is. And of course, if that stress is chronic, as you said, it's happening day in, day out then it's just it's it's almost there's a it's again it's it's a, it's a vicious circle isn't it? it just keeps happening
1: absolutely absolutely and you know this is why women who for example are having a stressful time tend to have a late period or even their periods end up getting skipped because their hormones are out of whack they are, again, their body is being told that, you know, you, this is not the time to rest and digest. This is not the time to have a baby. It's the time to, to fight or fly away from the situation. And so, again, you're absolutely right in that setting. <coughs> Excuse me. And so the other thing that is really important as well in w- with the context of stress is that it doesn't only affect the woman. It doesn't only affect the delivery of the baby. and. Their, their health at that time it also has been linked to the future health of, of children w- born to w- women who are stressed during their pregnancies so there uh, one study in 2003 showed that pregnancy related stress was a determinant of the development of uh, children at eight, the age of eight months in terms of delay uh, of their development including their motor skills as well, which is extremely interesting and extremely fascinating. They'd did say that there was further follow-up was required, but that is still quite a strong, you know, statement to come out and say, and that, you know, it's really, really shocking how it can have such a domino effect uh, on the health of babies. So it's really important to manage stress, not only for the woman now, but for our future, the future generation's health. And it also impacted on not only on again another study in two thousand and seven showed that the prenatal stress was predicted the development of uh fearfulness in infants as well as their mental development, so it not only developed uh, affected their and you know in the previous study in their motor skills and their developmental skills but also in their mental development and their fearfulness
0: yeah it's just such a huge huge impact isn't it on, on so many different aspects that we may not even just just think of or, or, or become aware of um similar i guess similar to the nutrition piece and, and the movement piece what what can someone do um you know if they are aware of of the, of the stress in their lives
1: so there again there is quite a few studies that have showed um, have had promising results to show that women who received cognitive behavioral therapy were almost twice as likely to end up pregnant compared to those who didn't. And so cognitive behavioral therapy basically focuses on trying to reframe your thought process and change negative, um, reframe negative thoughts to positive ones and trying to understand your emotions uh, and what leads you to develop, to undertake certain actions and how you feel when you do these actions and trying to modify that cycle. Um, So that's really key. So CBT is definitely something that women Can absolutely, and men can absolutely do to manage their stress. The other thing that is really key is also looking at what we eat. So, again, a whole food plant based diet is packed with plenty of antioxidants, plenty of fiber, plenty of nutrients, um, and really all we need to help us feel better. When we eat a high fiber diet that is mainly whole food plant based, it contains certain things called prebiotics, and prebiotics are indigestible, um, insoluble fibers that we can't digest but our gut bugs can digest. and they feed on those to create different things. One of them is you know the synthesis of B vitamins and vitamin K. Another thing they produce is short chain fatty acids, and short chain fatty acids are incredible, incredible chemicals. They have many, many functions. The most important of which, um, so one of the most important short chain fatty acids is butyrate. And this um, chemical is really key in managing your um, your stress levels, as well as uh, your gut brain talk with managing uh, your, your mental health. And they also stimulate serotonin production in the gut. And we know that serotonin is our happy hormone. And actually 90% of our serotonin production and receptors live in the gut. So if you eat the right things you're helping your gut bugs thrive to produce the chemicals that you need to help you feel better and serotonin is not only involved with making you feel happy it's also involved in your sleep quality um, as well as in your uh, appetite control so it it essentially gives you an overall um, sense of well-being and reduces your stress levels There are also probiotics that can um, improve your gut microbiome diversity and as well reduce your your stress. And we know that, so probiotics, for those of you who don't know, are essentially good bacteria that are live, that are found in essentially fermented foods, uh, or if you eat dairy, it is uh, present in um, things like yogurt or kefir, again, which is also fermented. And that's really um, key. That's a, it's a really th- that's a really good thing to uh, consider introducing into your diet. There, was, there were a couple of studies that showed that specific probiotics, uh, such uh, so one is called Lactobacillus helveticus, uh, r 52 and the other one is Bifidobacterium longum, R0175. When they were administered to people who had, uh, were experiencing stress, it was found to improve their emotional response and actually boost their resilience to stress. So again, uh, and, you know, lactobacillus uh, can be found in uh, lacto coming from the name. It's mainly found in milk products but it, uh, or dairy-based products, but you can also get that from uh, fermented uh, foods like sauerkraut or kimchi, um, as well as, you know, other things that contain um, any type of probiotic can be things like pickles as well. That's the easiest one to, for people to, to consider
0: yeah it's just it just it all goes back i mean it all kind of comes back to food doesn't it it's the first one we spoke about and every time with everything we talked about you can apply that to physical activity you need to make sure you're eating the right foods to fuel your physical activity and recover from your physical activity until here we are talking about stress and how food has a big impact on your gut microbiome which is of course going to can trigger or or, uh, trigger these these responses as well so food it just seems to be such a underpinning this 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 all of these pillars doesn't it
1: Absolutely. And I mean, let's not forget about yoga. I love yoga. I'm a big fan. (laughs) And its um, role, and especially mindfulness as well, and their role in um, stress management. So there have been a few studies, they're not very big. So, you know, the number of people treated were between, you know, 16 and ninety six in one study and 96 in another. And essentially, they found that women uh, or people, uh, well, specifically one study looked at pregnant women who were undertaking yoga versus women who were just having antenatal exercise classes. And they found that those who were undertaking yoga had a 30% reduction in depression and 9% reduction in anxiety levels uh, in nearly a study of 100 uh, women, <clears throat> and uh, compared to women who were just, you know, doing exercise. I mean, exercise is really, really important as well. But then, if you want to level up, you need to incorporate something like yoga um, into your practice, which can really help with um, managing, um, exor- uh, and, you know, depression, anxiety, which can develop from um, stress and that similarly you know the another study showed that women who were This was a very, very small study, so just 16 women that reported a reduction in their pain as well as their perceived stress uh, and anxiety following a seven-week mindfulness intervention with uh, a component that had yoga within it called a specific type of yoga called Iyengar yoga. So again, that's really, really key for us to consider all these things and where they sit in our, find something that we enjoy that is sustainable for us to do and then just keep doing it, you know? Um. The other thing that we need to do as well is sleep really well and exercise, as we already mentioned, um, to help with our um, stress levels. Because, you know, I don't know about you, but I can be very cranky, very irritable if I have had a terrible night's sleep. And you find yourself reaching for things that you wouldn't normally reach for, like, you know, highly processed foods and comfort, fit, you know, junk food that we wouldn't normally eat um, because your leptin and ghrelin are just out of sorts. And they make you, you know, have unhealthy, uh, make unhealthy choices in terms of your food, uh, food choices. So that's really key. Sleeping, sleep uh, really well is extremely important for our stress management.
0: Yeah, I don't think I've I've met anyone who wouldn't say yes to improving their sleep quality. I think it's you know, and and everyone everyone resonates with that Mishkat. You know, I think we all feel uh, we don't feel our best when we haven't had a good night's sleep, and and that just goes to show that you know if we're not feeling our best, then inside it's other things are probably going on that are not not at their best. So sleep, yeah, it's such a it's such a huge one and it's again it's one of those that it's maybe oh well you know i just i've just always been like this i just don't sleep i wake up in the middle of the night so there's obviously it's a we feel like there's a lack of control here but of course sleep is is paramount for helping us to recover. And if we're talking about fertility, trying to help us to, you know, get our body primed so that, that everything's working at its, its most efficient way so we can help ourselves to get pregnant. So the, the sleep piece is obviously a, a big one there. Um, there's obviously huge benefits from a growth perspective, recovery, all of these things that we've, we've spoken about. Um, uh, the lack of control here. So again, what's, what are some of the, the things that we can do to help to help improve our sleep quality?
1: So, sleep quality I mean let's talk about sleep quality in pregnancy in the first uh, sure. yeah from the beginning, so essentially, there's not a lot of data unfortunately, when it comes to sleep and pregnancy, but we know that about you know the national sleep uh, study in two thousand survey in two thousand and seven said that seventy nine percent of pregnant women suffer from sleep disorders, so that's a huge number of women. Um, they think it might be due to uh, reflux. Uh, Symphysiopelvic pelvic dysfunction, urinary frequency needing to get up to wee uh, at night, or just um, having a growing fetus in their belly, causing them to feel uncomfortable and not find a, a, a comfortable sleeping position. Uh, and then in some instances as well, if a woman is more on the higher side of her BMI, more likely to tip into developing obstructive sleep apnea during pregnancy. Uh, we know that their progesterone promotes sleep. But there was a study in 1996 that said, you know, maybe it's resulting in fragmented nighttime sleep because women are ten- needing to nap more during the day because of their higher progesterone levels. We don't know. Uh, but we know that actually cortisol, which is a stress hormone, increases in pregnancy three times over. And it, there is a, a study that suggested that maybe it results in more frequent waking and lighter sleep. So you're you know wait, not sleeping as much, and you're not sleeping deeply enough, which can be linked to the sleep disorders developing. In general, people need about seven to eight hours of sleep. And we need sleep to be able to recalibrate our emotional circuits, we need it to improve our immune system. And we need it to improve our glucose metabolism and regulation. So over time, you know, there are some studies that show that um, insulin resistance can actually develop overnight um and be reversed obviously uh just uh by being sleep deprived for one night only and it also you know maintains our, our my health our gut microbiome to be healthier it can reduce our blood pressure it is it helps us fight cancer. It helps us to learn, you know, when you don't sleep well before an exam and you've been cramming, I mean, forget about everything that you've crammed about, right? You're not going to remember any of that if you haven't slept well. So you need that to move the information from your immediate, you know, short-term memory to your long-term memory for you to be able to recall it. And all of these things are needed with um, with sleep uh, to to help um that are achieved by sleeping enough and sleeping well. Now, what can people do? The first thing I think people need to do is think about what they're doing when they first wake up to help them sleep better. You can't be, you know, not exercising, not getting your light exposure, drinking a ton of coffee, um, sitting on your tablet or your phone, getting exposed to your blue light filter, eating a meal very close to bed, having alcohol before bed, and then expecting a restful sleep. You know, so everything, (laughs) everything that I've said there, you need to do the opposite of, basically.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it may again. It's one of those things that it just it's it's what can we? None of these things that are going to be a a guarantee of an amazing night's sleep, but it's you can prime yourself and to give yourself the best chances. And 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 again, I might be scientifically wrong in the way I say this, but I think of it as like a habit. You know, sleep is just another habit, and if we've had the habit of waking up or having restless nights, we become u- accustomed to that and the body just keeps doing that. So we can try and change that by changing the environment. You know, make it, you mentioned light exposure, all of these things. It's just going to give us the best chance of improving our sleep quality. And over time, just like any other habit, if we can stick to it, it, can, it will improve and it will start to benefit us. So yeah, I think it's just being aware of these things and being aware, I think, of the importance as you've quite quite impo- you know quite nicely stressed here of getting that sleep, um, and I particularly like the the example about the learning, of course, you know, that's when your brain is, you know, I use the analogy of a filing cabinet, you know, it's when your brain's sort of filing people, there's probably young people listening who don't know what a filing cabinet is. I just realized that, um, but, you know, to, you know, filing away all the, all the data from the day and discarding all the, all the pieces of information that you don't want. So maybe in that day I was, you know, I kept telling myself, oh, I've got to, i got to go and get some milk. I've got to go and buy some milk. I've got to buy some milk. And then once I've got my milk, I don't want to remember, I don't need to file that information. So I want that to be thrown away. And then, you know, maybe another piece of information, I've got to make sure I, you know, uh remember you know someone's birthday i want to, i want this information stored so you're it's when you're sleeping that this this filing uh, starts to take place so i think yeah just being aware of this and the importance of it and i guess not worrying about it because of course that's going to have the opposite impact it's going to it's going to have you're going to create that stress response which of course we've already talked about so it's again there can be a vicious cycle here as well
1: absolutely and i think people don't realize that waking up in the night is completely normal physiologically it's your response to that wake up that makes it develop into a sleeping disorder so if you wake up in the night it's fine just roll over and go back to bed don't overthink it it's fine to wake up in you know for a brief moment and then go back in it's just you coming out of one sleep cycle and going back down into another one so sleep cycles are about 90 minutes long we need about five of them um (coughs) five to six of them (coughs) excuse me to um to have restful sleep and you go from different stages, you know, from one stage to another of sleep and you need to get to the deep uh, sleep state for you to, you know, fully get the, the bad, the benefits of sleep. And so the, you know, the simple tips I have for good sleep hygiene is, you know, 20 minutes of light exposure every day to tell your brain that it's morning, you know, to make sure that your circadian rhythm is flowing quite nicely with the 24 hour clock. The second thing is getting exercise. We've already talked about that. So 30 minutes a day, um, if you can, or even th- chunks, uh, three chunks of 10 minutes, if you can't afford to you know, go for a 30 minute um, exercise uh, walk. The other thing to do is to hydrate. A lot of people don't drink enough to help their body temperature get to the right level in order to help them to sleep. So if you're underhydrated, you're not allowing your core temperature to drop enough for you to get to the right level of sleep and to the different types of of, uh, different levels of sleep. So eight to 10 glasses of water, uh, or more, depending on your activity levels and how hot the day is, is really, really key to get that hydration in. The other thing is caffeine. So caffeine is a big one. And, you know, there's studies that show that some people can um, assimilate caffeine differently, depending on their genes. And so you just need to sort of, test it with yourself and say, you know, is if I have a a coffee at three o'clock, is that my complete cutoff? And that will I be able to have a a good, a good hour sleep, a good good night's sleep at that night. And if the answer is no, then shift it back, try 12 o'clock. And if then it's still no, then maybe you're just going to be able to have a morning coffee. And that will be the caffeine that you have for the day. Um, And people need to be really mindful of where caffeine hides as well. So a lot of energy drinks obviously have caffeine in them. Um, herbal teas in general are absolutely fine. Uh, but again, green tea and tea do have caffeine in them. So if that, that's something that you, you're quite sensitive to caffeine, then try to minimize these, uh, closer to the, to the night and any, any time after I would say 12 o'clock for some people, some, some people, it might be three o'clock, but definitely no, no caffeine consumption after five o'clock. Um, and the other thing to consider as well is what time you eat. So we shouldn't be having large meals at night. Um, we should definitely be eating at least three hours before we we go to bed and definitely not drinking within the same amount uh within the, within the same time frame uh by drinking I mean alcohol um, and so these things are really really key. The final thing is um not to be on our phones, <laughs> which I probably find is extremely difficult for a lot of people to do. They want to be checking emails late at night or what have you if you need to really, really need to. You should put a blue light filter on or when you're watching TV, if that's something that you do before bed, which I, again, wouldn't recommend, then wear some blue light filter glasses. The better option is to just disconnect completely for 90 minutes at least and just focus on the things, focus on, again, getting rid of all the stresses of the day, going through your day and thinking, you know, have done, have I done everything I need to do? This is this something I need to, you know, think about now? Uh, You know, even if I haven't done it, I just need to park it aside and, you know, plan my day tomorrow and not worry about it so much and really just grab a book. Or have a warm bath, put some nice socks on, and make sure that your uh, environment is conducive to a restful sleep. The optimum temperature of a room should be between 18 and 19 degrees. Too hot or too cold, you're not going to have a restful sleep. Make sure that your bed is comfortable. Make sure that your pillows are comfortable um, and that you're wearing comfortable clothing, especially for women who, for example, are undergoing um, the you know uh, menopausal symptoms. Keep it light. Uh, and make sure that you're, you know, if you need to completely block out light in your room, if it's coming from somewhere, block it out by wearing, um, you know, an eye mask or block it out completely by getting some really good blackouts. So these would be my tips for optimum sleep.
0: Yeah. I mean, the caffeine one is one for me personally that I've made a big shift in, in my, 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 my lifestyle. I mean, I was, you know, I was that guy who would quite happily have a double espresso after my evening meal, you know, like they do in you know, and d I, I don't know where I picked that habit up from. I think there's many, many visits to the to the to the continent and you see, you know, people there drinking coffee into the evening. And mm. and I at the time, I remember I did this for years, I assumed um that, you know, I was okay, you know. I was, I was. I'm sleeping. It's okay, but I guess it's the quality of the sleep that I was getting. The deep, you know, we, we, have, we don't need to go into the, the details here, but the, the the depth of your sleep that you're getting, obviously, that quality is impacted. And just that one shift of and I first did, the, you know, I, I had a noon cut off of, of having a cup of my caffeine before noon. That made a huge difference. I actually noticed after a few weeks how how much better I was sleeping. So that was definitely one for me. And of course, the light exposure as well is another one I've you know, try to adapt into my life and just make sure that everywhere I've lived is always, you know, the bedroom is kind of, it's there to, to help us to, to, to be conducive. Like you said, the environment, the comfort, the temperature. So those definitely I've witnessed myself and experienced, and I know there's a lot of benefits to be had. So yeah, sleep. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, I've talked about it. I have previous podcasts about it. And there's, there's, um, there's a great book, which I know you've, you've, you've referenced as well, which is um, why we sleep by, by Matthew Walker, which is, which is fascinating. I urge people who are interested in this topic to go and check that out because it's a, a fascinating
1: read. Absolutely.
0: Excellent. So we come to so this idea of relationships, uh, love connection, where, yeah, let's just f- wrap up this these these pillars with this final one.
1: If we are not in healthy relationships and we're not in a healthy relationship with ourselves, it's very hard for us to find balance. And one of the studies that I love and absolutely, you know, I love this study, um, is the Harvard study of adult development. And this study was, you know, it started during the Great Depression. It was following up some 700 odd uh, men um, in a very detailed way, trying to understand over time what happened to them based on the relationships that they had. So they did their blood tests, they asked them questions, they ha- they asked their children questions, they scanned their heads. Um, they did all sorts. And essentially, after 80 years of following them up, they found quite a few things that were extremely interesting. The first thing is that loneliness kills. Uh, and in the words of Robert Waldinger, who is the uh, you know, primary investigator of that part of the study, is he said that loneliness kills. It's as powerful as smoking or alcoholism. Extremely, extremely powerful. And it is a disease. And we know now, obviously, with everything going on in the pandemic as well, it is, it has been catastrophic for some families, especially older people who live alone, who have minimal to no support. Um, They are most likely going to suffer a premature death, unfortunately. And the study also showed that this was true in people who were loners. They often died earlier than people who kept warm relationship, relationships with their loved ones. They ended up living longer than expected. And those who lived longer had better health, they avoided smoking, they avoided excessive alcohol use, and they had less mental deterioration because they had a strong social support network. They also found that men and women in their 80s who were happily married didn't report that their mood suffered on days when they had physical pain. And that those, conversely, who were in unhappy marriages felt more pain, both physically and emotionally. And so ultimately, the most important thing is that you choose the right partner to age with and age Longer and healthier, with, um, and that's really really key. So it's not only also just about your partner or your wife or your husband. It is about your social network as well, and staying connected with your community um, is really key. And we see that as well in the Blue Zones, Sunjay. Um, with you know the nine powerful habits that were um, identified from Dan butner's work with uh, the Blue Zone country uh, areas which are five different areas uh, around the world that have more centenarians, people who live over 100, who are uh, well and fit, have many of the things that we've talked about. They do eat a predominantly plant-based diet. They eat up to 80% full. They eat um, with their family and friends. They have a glass of wine at at, at five with their families, way before their bedtimes. And they have a purpose in life. They have connections. They... They belong to the right tribe uh, and they are very much part of a community and they have a sense of community uh, and social connection within them. And that's really, really key because, you know, no man or woman um, is an island ultimately.
0: Yeah, I think this is this is a, a really really important one and a very fascinating one when you start looking into it. I certainly, certainly I'm, I'm fascinated with the work of, of, of Dan and the, and the Blue Zones, and uh, when you look into it, it's just it's it's interesting how these these things are impacting our life. And yeah, you could even. Draw comparisons to the animal kingdom, where there are animal kingdoms, you know, that, you know, think of lions or anyone that lives in a big group. They tend to thrive more. They tend to have more food. They tend to, you know, live longer. So there's, 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 there's obviously a lot of parallels here. And I think, yeah, in in the human world, I think a lot of people potentially over the last 12 months or so have maybe felt a little bit this loneliness and and isolation, even if we do have people around us. So it just goes to show how much of an impact that does have on our, on our overall health, Not, not just mental, but physical as well, which is, uh, which is I guess what we're talking about when it comes to you know, helping us increase our chances of fertility. So um, really, really fascinating, you know, going through those pillars and, and uh, highlighting each one. Um, there's a number of references here, which of course I will link um, in, in the sh- episode show notes so that everyone can uh, go back and, and have a look if they're interested.
1: Yeah. Um and the most important thing to to mention as well with fertility is um, our toxin exposure from the environment mm. um, as well. So we know that um, there are a few things that I mean, there's many things in the environment. The most obvious uh, for women and men especially is uh, mercury. And... Um, I'm sure you're aware of the recommendations with certain foods that women who are pregnant or trying to fall pregnant should be eating or avoiding. One of them is canned fish because of the mercury um, levels in these types of fish. And there are relation- there is, there are links with um, mercury exposure and their effects on fertility and pregnancy outcomes. We do know as well that there are endocrine hormone disruptors, uh, which are different types. So they can be things like dioxins, furans, um, which are toxic chemicals um, as well as different types of plastic. So BPA or you know non BPA that have found their way into our lives through what we use every day, like cosmetics or um, you know, house cleaning products, but they're also found in our food uh, and they can be found in some plant sources, but they are mainly found in fish and that is not efficient seafood. And that is the number one thing that we should be focusing on um, when it comes to fertility as well. So we, I mean, Previously, I did mention that the, one of the studies showed that fish and seafood was helpful for uh, sperm quality. But given the risk-benefit ratio of you potentially increasing your chances of uh, mercury and other um, toxins in the environment that are found in fish meat uh, and can f- you know, find their way into our our cells and our tissues, causing fertility problems. And the the best thing to do is to avoid them and find other sources of omega threes, like chia seeds or walnuts, or even just taking an omega three supplement um, on a daily basis to reap the benefits of that and just get the goodness without everything else that may that does come with um, eating fish. Um, and that's that's really really key. I think we do need to be mindful of that. The, the environmental working uh, group. Uh, in 2019, published a report. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, uh, but it published a report on uh, one of the things that it talked about was the dirty dozen. Uh, and these are fruits and vegetables that are heavily loaded with pesticides. So trying to find organic sources is best and obviously trying to wash them thoroughly um, using, you know, salt or sodium bicarbonate and, you know, soaking them for quite some time to get rid of these pesticides can help. Um, and, you know, we'll, Put the link down, uh, for that in the, um, in the caption for the podcast for people to know what these dirty dozen are. But, you know, there are things that are very common like apples, grapes, and strawberries, you know, and spinach. I, I pretty much eat a lot of these every day and you just need to make sure that you, um, you rinse these out quite, uh, well.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting, that's a very important point as well. I think, yeah, that's something that maybe does go, um, we have a little bit of an oversight. I think maybe the way things are packaged in supermarkets, they look super clean and super bright and we think, oh, it's okay. But yeah, I think it's, it's important to take those extra steps as a, as a precaution, certainly with this. And I've definitely come across this idea of the dirty dozen. So yeah, we'll get, we'll get the links to those in the, in the show notes for for everyone as well. Um, that's, that's great. Um, so all of this, yeah, well, everything we've talked about, this, this is, you know, we're applying this to the idea of increasing our chances of fertility. Um, so you've obviously gone that step extra and you've mentioned earlier, you've set up this, this lifestyle code clinic, um, to, to help, um, you know, couples and, and patients to improve their chances here. So just tell us a little bit about the work you do there and, and what, what, what could someone expect if they came to, to talk to you or visit you?
1: Yeah. So thank you, Sanjay. Well, what the, so as I mentioned before, the clinic uh, is set up with myself uh, and I have a wonderful, wonderful team of a fertility nutritionist, a dietitian, personal trainer, and mindfulness teacher. And I work quite closely uh, alongside the CRP clinic, uh, actually in Epsom. Uh, They are clinic based they do some work virtually but our work is mainly virtual online so people can book an appointment directly through the website on www.lifestylecode.co.uk and we have a free inquiry call as well for about 15 minutes just to have a chat and understand where you are in your journey and if this is the right um, treatment for you um and you know nine out of ten times it is and uh, people usually need uh, some form of support with their diet with their level of exercise with their motivation um and what we try to do is basically understand why you want to make the change um usually it's to fall pregnant <laughs> um and you know it's it's a it's a wonderful package in that you're not only gonna improve your health um, and have a wonderful baby at the end of this journey, but you're going to develop healthy habits that you can continue doing for life that make you live the best life possible. Uh, and what people can expect from, from seeing me and my colleagues is that we would undertake a uh, quite an extensive pre-assessment questionnaire, um, looking at all the aspects of your lifestyle, including your environmental toxin exposure. And we undertake a, uh, blood tests as well at the CRP clinic. They need to come in for those. And then we look at uh, all the put everything together for some instances in some patients we do recommend microbiome testing as well Um, and that is to look at the gut microbiome diversity as we mentioned there is a link with their immune system and especially in women who suffer with recurrent miscarriages we would be focusing on that more uh, deeply to try and optimize their immune function by modifying their gut uh, their gut health and improving it um and then we would track your progress using wearable trackers like a you know fitbit or an apple watch uh, or a garment whatever you have or you can get from us um and then just to see how well you're sleeping how well uh you are how much you're moving how uh how well you're eating how you're managing your your stress levels and using both you know questionnaires that we we send to you tracking your progress for those we also screen for mental health especially ptsd depression anxiety and where appropriate we would um, seek that you uh, speak to a a trained psychologist or a psychiatrist as appropriate for your case Uh, and really going through the journey with you to recommend certain foods that support your fertility recommend uh, habits uh, as so for example, like for men who may be cycling, then we would recommend minimizing that and you know, changing it to a different form of exercise. For men who uh, are, you know, having you know a lot of jacuzzi sessions uh, in a week, which uh, again is wet heat exposure that can impact on their sperm quality, we would recommend minimizing that and eliminating it from their da- from their lifestyle. And obviously, people who smoke, drink, or uh, use caffeine, overuse caffeine, we'd recommend uh, minimizing those. And we'd offer some techniques to help with that as well. A lot of people may need to lose weight, uh, or some people may need to lose weight. We would also support with that. And the most beautiful thing is that when you go whole food plant-based, the weight just comes off, Sunjay, <laughs> and you don't really need to do much more. Um, but some people may need extra support. And so we, for that, we have a registered dietitian who is also certified, uh, certified lifestyle, um, uh, di- dietitian and um, specializes in weight loss uh, because you know, keeping a healthy weight pre-pregnancy and uh, during and after pregnancy as well is really, really important to maintain fertility. So these are all the things that we do. We do it virtually um, and we monitor your journey throughout and people, you know, we've had very good uh, feedback so far actually. And the beautiful thing is that people feel in control. So we've had a lot of patients who have said that um, they feel like, They're not given the treatment, and they're just a passive acceptor of the treatment, whereas they are now actively taking decisions and choosing what they want to do with their life uh, and taking ownership and feeling like they are in control. And then when they reap the results, they just feel completely over the moon because they feel like they've done this. And that's really, really key. And it's just such a wonderful, wonderful thing to see.
0: Yeah, I think that's really, that's that's so important. I think what something else you mentioned there as well in that this, you know, yes, someone maybe, or a couple, or, you know, maybe what a family want to start a family. They want to think about fertility, but the benefits, they, they're just far, they're far, they reach far beyond just the fertility, right? And then I think, you know, you mentioned about learning lifestyle habits or new habits that can, you can sustain and, and stay healthy. I and mean, this is probably the most important part of this because everything we've talked about here today absolutely applies and you've explained it wonderfully well how it applies to fertility but it can apply to many other aspects of your life so if anyone's struggling with any of those things and, and yeah at the same time when you get pregnant I think what you'll find the investment here is just you know to, to learn and become more aware of these things because once you're a, if you're not aware of these these all these different you know uh, aspects impacting your health or your health outcomes then of course there's nothing we can do about it so just going through that process of becoming aware and then understanding okay well i'm aware what can i do about it i mean that's where the the power this 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 knowledge and this information is and and just having that guidance and and professional um you know structure to help people is is, is very very important so uh, i certainly implore people to come and check out you got the website again i'll link the website uh, in the show notes below um can people you're on social media where can people find you if they want to look you up
1: We are on uh, Facebook and uh, on Instagram at the Lifestyle Code Clinic. So at the Lifestyle Code Clinic. uh, And they can find us through both of these. We're quite active as well. We respond to DMs um, for people who are just inquiring uh, and wanting to to learn more about the service. Because it, it is very new. It's very new for people to... Sort of hear about lifestyle medicine, and then even understand what the context of it is in a fertility setting. And it, the most important thing to highlight here is that we work alongside fertility doctors. We do not replace um, fertility treatments, but we help you optimize and improve your chances of falling pregnant for whatever um, treatment that you're being given by uh, the fertility the fertility experts.
0: Wonderful. Uh Mishka, lovely having you here on the podcast today. We've we've gone into so much detail, so much information. Uh, I think, you know, there's so much there for people to learn and understand. Um I, and again, I'll just encourage people to go and check out your website and your socials to to get more information. Uh I would love to do this again, maybe sort of deep dive on some of these topics. Uh, you know, I know micro the microbiome is something I wanted to talk about, which we didn't get a chance to do in detail today, but that's an area uh yeah, I would like to talk about in the future. But yeah, w- w- thank you very much for uh, for your time uh, and yeah thanks for just i guess getting this information out there and making people more aware i think this is one of the reasons i want to do this podcast is to just help highlight that there are you know there's, there's a big movement towards you know uh, professionals you know the medical community adopting this lifestyle approach and the more people that be- can become aware that, that the better it is so uh, thank you for that and, and thank you again for your time
1: absolutely thank you so much Sunjay for having me and I really really admire the work that you do with the podcast and I hope to be on here uh, again soon so thank you
0: thank you to this week's guests for their time and insights it was a real pleasure speaking to them all the social media and website links for today's guest can be found on the show notes page on our website which is www.stayhole.co.uk forward slash swp If you enjoyed this podcast, then please share it with someone that you think might benefit from it. I would also be very grateful if you could visit Apple Podcasts or Stitcher and leave me a review. It will really help this information reach more and more people. Thank you. And if you're a health, fitness or wellness professional and you want to be a guest on the show, or you have your own personal health and wellness journey that you want to share, then contact me via email. It's sunjayatstaywhole.co.uk. That's S-U-N-J-A-Y at stayhole.co.uk. You can get me on Instagram or Twitter. It's at life, or on facebook.com forward slash staywhole. I would love to hear from you. Thank you to Purple Planet for all the music in this episode. And as always, thank you to you for listening. I am forever grateful. And remember to stay whole.